You and I both know that crypto is rapidly becoming the future of finance. You will also probably be aware that investing in crypto can seem a little daunting or even just outright confusing. The real question is, is how do you break down those barriers so that you can confidently invest in crypto in a way which is both profitable and sustainable in the long run? Join me on my journey to helping new crypto investors go from prospects to pros in crypto investment. Whether it's a Bitcoin or Bored Ape, I've got the insider tips and tricks so that you can take those steps towards the financial future that you've always dreamt of. My name's Christopher Hitchin. Welcome to the Easy Crypto Podcast. So this week on the Easy Crypto Podcast, we have Miles Wakem, who's going to tell us how he got into crypto. So without further ado, Miles, how did you get into crypto? Oh, I, uh, I like that cypherpunk thing. <laughs> That's kind of what led me into it. So um, I'll give you a little background. I'm a, a, I guess you would call it retired person. Uh, that's a word that I don't like to use, but it's the easiest way to describe it. I, I worked as a software technologist. So I was one of the very early pioneers in the personal computer. In 1978, I had my first PC and I was the, I guess you could call it the, the, the cheap version of Bill Gates in Australia, which is where I'm from originally. I wrote software for a living. I never finished high school. I made my money running a software company back in the day when there was no, no such thing and uh, did very well for myself and then eventually left the, uh, the, my home native country for uh, the world of the United States of America when I was 25 and uh, came here, invested in and, and put a lot of my time into things like biotechnology, uh, worked in Hollywood for a while. I did a lot of that sort of thing and all the way through using my skills as a software developer all the way through it. So as the many decades through that process in the 90s, as the internet came about, I was one of the guys that was very closely associated and interested in the cryptography movement, uh, particularly in regards to personal freedom, uh, liberty, so on. And as a result of that, I stumbled into the work of various people in areas of digital money, uh, e-cash, that sort of thing. And uh, the, my foray through that was actually through, of all things, uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. I was looking for answers as to how people could buy virtual weapons in World of Warcraft or something like that. And that uh, made me stumble into the world of MTGOX back before it even was trading in Bitcoin and eventually into Bitcoin. So that's kind of how I got into it. I started bought my first Bitcoin in... 2011 cost me seven bucks a piece. I bought quite a lot of it. Uh, there was a whole reason for that. I stumbled into it because I was paying a guy who was working for me who was in Bangladesh and they had no reciprocal banking agreement with the United States. So the only way I could pay him was these very expensive wire transfers and Western Union and all that stuff. And we needed a better way. And we discovered Bitcoin. I bought a lot of it, stuck it in an exchange paid him bit by bit out of it and then watched it go from $7 to 1200 and thought that I was the smartest guy on the planet and I was just lucky. Uh, but the smart thing was I got it out of the exchange and ended up holding my own keys and then watched it go to the moon. So I, one of those guys has that story, uh, but I, there's reason for it. And it's not the reason that most people get into crypto today. It's interesting is that because 
that happened to to my friend. He he um, was doing gym supplements, and he was importing the material from China. And China turned around to to him and said, uh, "We want you to pay us in Bitcoin." And he started right at the beginning, just just like you. And then he saw it creep up and up and up and up and up. And that's when he was like, "Oh my God, this is going to change the world." And that's just obviously transformed his life. So. Yeah. It does that. <laughs> Here we are today in crypto. And I want to ask you, what's the biggest hurdle that you've got over, overcome because of, of uh, crypto? What's it enabled you to do then? Uh, well, you know, something common, which I noticed with a lot of the guys, the OGs in the crypto world, the guys like me who were in there back in the early days, crypto made us question money as a concept. because yeah, money is a long history. It's thousands of years of history. And when you deal with Bitcoin at a software level, at a protocol level, and you sort of understand what it does and how it works and this whole double spend problem and all the, the ideas of, you know, combating counterfeiting, the things that like we in the Western world don't even have to deal with anymore, right? You're like, you, when you go and spend money to buy a cup of coffee somewhere, you don't question that the, the note that you pay with is counterfeit. You just pay it and you assume it, right? When somebody gives you money, you don't assume they've already spent this money and it's worthless. But Bitcoin or crypto forces you to choose to question those things. It forces you to have a solution for how do you stop somebody spending the money you've got uh, at the same time? How do you know when you buy that pair of shoes that somebody hasn't used your very same keys to buy a pair of shoes themselves and yours are worthless, who, who wins? And that's why we have mining uh, validation. It's those things that you start questioning, oh, at a technological level, I need to understand what the essence of money is. When you start thinking of money that way, you start seeing that it's not a science, it's an art that it's about people and anthropology and human flaws and frailties and greed and FOMO and all these things that are baked into money. And that because we as individuals never had the individual power and responsibility to be able to do this ourselves, we relied on counterparties, government, central banks, banking, to do it for us. Because we don't trust ourselves with the safe in the backyard. We have to go to the the bank and deposit our money, that's on us. And the fact is that Bitcoin as a protocol forces you to get real with self-responsibility and holding your own keys. And when you don't, you give it up to an exchange and you see the exchange gets hacked. Well, that's on you, right? It's like we've gone back to the wild west of the 1880s and you know we're, we're in the gold rush and everyone's worried about, you know, lay off my gold. And, and they're out there trying to find the assay office and, and the bank. And we're back to that again. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, if we're going to go back to that, I guess I better understand what money really is. And that was where I got it. That was where I understood. Now I'll tell you how I got it. It's a weird story. I got on a plane. I went to Venice, Italy. And in Venice, Beautiful Italy, place. Beautiful place. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous place. There's a little part of Venice called the Carinegio. It's also called the Jewish ghetto. And it's a little quarter. It's very nondescript. It's not touristy like the, it's not big palatial, you know, 
it's not by the water so much. It's just this inland little corner of Venice. And in there, there's a town square. And in that town square is where the world of investment banking was invented. And the reason why it was invented there was that back in the days of the, I guess, 1100s or so, the uh, Roman Empire, the Roman Italy, was under very strict rule by the Roman Catholic Church and, the, and its, its governance was done under religious edict. And one of those edicts was that you could not lend money and charge interest. And that was a, you know, a biblical thing. And it was a, you know, it felt right, except that the people in Venice need to eat. <laughs> and the farmers on the mainland, they had to buy seed to plant their crop and they had to buy labor to plant the seed. And that meant that they had to have capital. They had to have money to begin their venture and they didn't have it. So what did they do? Well, they couldn't borrow it because the government wouldn't let them. Step in the Jewish people who did not believe in both books in the Bible. They just took the first one. The first one said they were allowed to lend money at reasonable interest rates, particularly to Gentiles. So what did they do? They set up this thing they called a bank on the side of the river. What do you call it? It's a bank, right? And in there, they had three little, what they used to be pawnbroker shops. There was one that had black signage, one that had green signage, one that had red signage. And it's from these terms that we get in, in finance, the term in the black, in the red, in the green. Uh, this comes from this history. I needed to go there. I needed to stand in that town square and I needed to get the sense of why. And I realized that the Jewish people did something that Bitcoin did. They hacked the system because the system itself was not feeding the people of Venice. The system itself was corrupt. The system itself was based on promises, not reality. The US financial system, the fiat currency world, left the gold standard in 71. It had, you know, they're printing money like a drunk with an American Express card. We just put $6 trillion into the national debt in the last two years because of COVID, I guess. But no, this is what they do. They print money. Have you seen those YouTube videos with him, with a cash till printing money? money yeah. Out? The, the thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's reason, right? We, we're out of control drunks spending money like some euphoric state thinking that there's no tomorrow and we don't have to be responsible for it. What's, what's going to make you responsible? I know as a software developer, math. <laughs> you can't argue math. And that's the reality of Bitcoin right there. When you understand the history of money, you understand that it has good purpose and there is need for financial services. You need to be able to feed the people of the city of Venice. You need to be able to lend money and start new ventures. That's how economics works. That's how growth happens. Yes, it's needed, but it has to be done with reasonable uh, rules, reasonable restriction. And most importantly, it, can, it has to be transparent. People have to be able to see that if I put my money in that bank, that the bank has my money. This is our problem. In the 1880s, I live in Arizona, so I can kind of talk to this, but in the 1880s, the US lost banks left, right, and center because what would happen is you get this crazy story in the press that so-and-so bank was going to run out of money. And what happened was everybody to run on the banks. And then you come face to face with this problem that I think the DeFi industry has not got an answer to. And that is, if, I, if you give me $1,000 and I lend it to somebody and I can charge interest on that and you come to me and say, I want my money back, thanks, I deposited it, now I want to withdraw it, uh, I haven't got it because I lent it to that guy 
And therefore, until he pays me back, you can't have it. That's not going to work for depositors. You need a, a lender of last resort to fill in the gaps. That's why we have a central bank. But the truth is, the DeFi industry doesn't have a central bank. It has promises. And it doesn't back its holdings by anything. So you cannot, money can't come out of nothing. That's the beauty of math is it keeps things honest. And it's probably the reason why you're seeing these projects like Luna and so on just completely collapsing because they were never built on the foundational basis of true financial services and what money really is. It's an interesting one that we've, we've seen that happen this week. And I think you've, you've touched on a, a subject. I, I think in particular with Luna, the fact that he said, we, you know, we, we're going to defend the peg at, at 98 cents. He just pretty much opened it up to uh, attack by saying, I've got 3 billion. And obviously the big banks came along, the big hedge funds. And we know that a few unscrupulous operators shorted it heavily. And obviously that just, it just went into a spiral. Yeah, it's like a run on the banks. They didn't have the money to pay out the depositors and they collapsed. It's happened thousands of times, particularly in the late 1800s. There is no difference here. It's just math instead of gold bars or something or silver coins. So you could never have that happen with Bitcoin, could you? Well, you can't have it happen with Bitcoin as a protocol. You can have it happen with DeFi. Anytime that you go into financial services, and there are, there are layers here. Bitcoin at the protocol is the lowest layer, and it's just simply math. It's your own keys. You make transactions. They're validated on the blockchain. The blockchain generates currency. It refills the pool. There are 21 million. That's it. It's a very basic protocol. The thing is that we can't, we don't live on the world of money. If we did, we'd all be just using dollar bills and, or pounds or whatever and exchanging money for the goods and services that we need. We don't. We use a thing called financial services. Financial services, the, the banks, the, we expect you know, to put money away for our pensions or our social security, insurance, all of these industries that are built on the back of money are starting to emerge on the back of cryptocurrency. And the problem is just like it was in the 1800s when these businesses emerged in their current form, those businesses facing the exact same challenges that happened back in those days. What changed things back in those days? Well, the government stepped in and started regulating everything. That's number one. And the second thing they did was they had a lender of last resort. They had a central bank digital currency, shall we call it? <laughs> and why do you think that's it's going to happen exactly the same way? If we've got a protocol, the governments will come in, underwrite it, be the lender of last resort, regulate it, and want a piece of the action all the way through. Yeah, we're going to definitely see some regulation in stable coins. But I, I think that I think basically we've seen damage done to the industry this week that's going to take a lot to recover from. But I also think it's actually been good in the sense that. I think for the long-termers, it's highlighted what's going to survive and what's not going to survive. And obviously, the fact is, is Bitcoin's been extremely resilient. Would you class yourself as a Bitcoin maximist? Um, uh, yeah, I used to be until about 2017. So mm -hmm. what happened in 2017? BitConnect probably was the biggest one. 
I saw greed and I saw human flaws come in at such a level I'd never seen in the stock market before. I mean, I remember back in the 80s, you watched that Wall Street movie, the Oliver Stone movie. Greed is good. I remember, you know, as a kid when I was watching that, I, I kind of drew a lesson from that, you know, that story, that character. I wanted to be that rich guy with all the, you know, with the Lambos and whatever. But I also realized that wealth has to come from something. You have to be able to, you have to have some sort of an input, some sort of skin in the game, whether you do it through toil or you do it through owning something somebody wants to buy or pay money to use. That's where wealth really comes from. What I saw in uh, 2017 in the Bitcoin world was that the purists uh, that were out there, the guys that I'd meet at the conferences and the guys that knew me and the guys that I'd, I still to this day have friendships with, started to have the same sort of doubts in their mind, not because of the protocol, not because of the technology, not because of cryptography or quantum computing or all of that stuff, but because of people, humans, their flaws, and they saw greed and they saw criminal behavior. And the reality was they had no way of fighting it. And we all sort of realized that it's not that we've invented something here that is really incredible and a great service to humanity. It's the humanity itself that's the problem. It's the old story, you know, with uh, software. It would be really great if it wasn't for those damn customers. And in this particular case, it's the customers that, flew, that blew the thing out of the water. Uh, and it's continued. I mean, 2017, we had the euphoria up to 20K. Then you had all the bad stuff going on, the, the exchanges, the miners, the Bitcoin, BitConnects, all of these things crashed it back down to 6K. Everybody, you know, went and dusted themselves off and nursed their bruises and looked back and goes, oh, geez, if only I sold when it was 20. Okay, three, four years later, it goes to 60. Everyone back then is going, oh, thank God I didn't sell when it was, you know. Is it really what Bitcoin's about? No. The Bitcoin white paper from 20, 2009 is titled Bitcoin, an electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash system. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a medium of exchange. All these stores of values and, and truth in the blockchain, that was not its intent. They are side effects. They are side benefits. But what's happened is that the side benefits become the main storyline with these things. And that's why I have my doubts. Not because of Bitcoin. I think as a protocol, technologically, it's sound, it's solid, it's stood the test of time, and it won't, it's not going anywhere. It's not the Bitcoin. It's the users, particularly the government and corporate users that may see this as a threat and try and take it down because the one thing that Bitcoin has is its code, its math, and it's immutable. You cannot dispute what you see on the blockchain. And that means all the bad guys have got all their bad deeds out in the open and they don't want that. Now, here's an interesting one. So you've covered up a few points there. I mean, I think, I think the Bitcoin and the crypto arena is changing in some, some ways, not for the better, and in other ways, for the better. I think you're seeing the corporate banks coming in. And I think you're seeing the year of 2021 was the corporate banks investing in Bitcoin. And I think now what they're doing is manipulating the price out, pushing it down, out, yeah. selling, selling short just to get the price of Bitcoin down. And I think the lunar, and I think obviously over a period of time, it will transpire uh, that the whole point of that was 
to effectively push the price of Bitcoin down and then buy Bitcoin back up at a cheap price. I mean, obviously it dipped, I think it dipped to about 20, 26. Because obviously the banks didn't buy at seven because obviously those banks were quite openly saying that if, if you bought Bitcoin, they'd sack you, uh, which is quite amusing when, uh, when they said that. And I think the whole kind of blockchain is maturing and we've got some really good projects coming uh, and, uh, and we've got some already online. I mean, obviously Eve's, Eve's one of them. Did you ever, did you ever get involved at all in the mining side? With, yeah, you I did. The, with the with, with you having the technology background yeah yeah at many levels i've mined myself just by you know pulling computers apart back in the day when you could uh and built bitcoin and and actually more later ethereum mining with graphics cards and stuff and i thought well this is great but i live in a in a state where despite the fact we have sun and abundance of it uh in the summer months power here is about 23 cents a kilowatt hour it's pretty expensive and so you've got to be careful when you choose to use your power up. And so that kind of became a, it, it was profitable at certain times. I think probably around 2016, 2017, we were doing pretty well profiting in mining. Um, I ended up uh, investing a fair amount of money. Uh, stupidly, this didn't work out very well, but I invested some money in a mining farm in Iceland based on some advice from a friend of mine that didn't pay out. And uh, they went down the toilet. That was the BitClub network. Uh, ended up jailing most of the founders who still are in jail today uh, because they were selling, you know, they, they went and got Bitcoin miners and stuck them in Iceland where you had basically free or cheap geothermal power. And they were then using that as a kind of a, I guess you buy shares into it. I guess that was the way it worked. So you buy shares in their mining hardware and they'd operate it on your behalf kind of like a an hoa or a property manager would with a real estate portfolio only to find out that they were just stealing from everybody outright and not reporting back the actual earnings and when that you know the fbi went after them and found out what they did they all ended up in jail and then we, you find out that the emperor has no clothes and that the the founder was a pedophile and he was arrested in indonesia on child sex offenders and and it's like, oh my God, is this the people I'm dealing with here? Yeah, they are. They are. This is these are this is the people that are out there. So at that point in time, my mining career kind of got cut short, and I decided, you know what, mining ain't for me. So uh, I got out of that. <laughs> it's you know, it's interesting. You say, unfortunately, there's too many scammers in the mining side. I mean, we uh, we do we are crypto miners ourselves. We manufacture the machines. And the way that we do it is, is we locate the mining machines on farms that are used, we use the electric from anaerobic digesters. So literally oh. our machines are green, but that's two companies in our industry that I've heard of this week. There's another company that's just been recently impressed on Cointelegraph. I think this week, actually, and they've stole 62 million. They just yeah. Like, I, I think Club Network were down for like 400 or 700 million. It was uh, a large amount of money. This is what I can't understand because it's like, I sent them to one of my members of staff. I'm like, Bitcoin mining or ETH. I mean, obviously ETH at the moment, ETH's coming to an end soon, but it, even the other altcoin mining is profitable, even now in this current climate. And obviously we're in a bit of a good term of crypto winter. Bitcoin mining, if you have the electric 
at a low acquisition cost, it is highly profitable. So it's like, well, if you if you're getting forty percent return on investment, why on earth are you having to steal it? Yeah, yeah, I know. Actually, you know, it's something I did get into recently was cheer. I started mining cheer. Oh, the disc stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I got out of it after a while because I realized it wasn't sustainable. The amount of disk capacity required to generate those blocks that you know were part of the, the pools of cheer, uh, it, it became just, it just wasn't going to end well because hard drives were just going to fill up landfills on mass as a result of this. But it didn't seem to stop the IMF from adopting it as their green currency of choice because it looked good on a political brochure. But I think that it's not sustainable. At least that was my gut feeling on it. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have much a, a, a experience in cheer, but I, I didn't like the idea that you can't control who's going on it and what they're starring. Yeah, yeah. See, a bit like what you said, it, you know, these computers, that it's the humans that use them that are, are you know, use them for bad intention. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we what we, we think is, is obviously for the mining side is is, as long as it's green, then it's for good. You know, the Bitcoin mining is for good. And I, th- I think there's no reason why any sort of mining operation these days and, you know, in different countries should actually be anything but green. And for us, it, it helps the farms because obviously rather than selling the, um, selling the electric back to the grid and they don't get paid too much, we're paying triple what they would normally get. For us, it works really well. Uh, because obviously, you know, we're getting it at a reasonable rate. We're lower than what, what you, you are over in the States, which is quite surprising because, let's face it, everything in England is more expensive. Yeah, uh, but we have nuclear power plants down the road. I mean, you'd think that we could get it, but the sunk cost of that has to be paid for somehow and they just roll it into the price. I think at the moment there's a lot of the, let's put stuff up for inflation. I mean, I know today Germany came out and said their production inflation i anything in manufacturing is running at 33 percent which is obviously mm-hmm. absolutely staggering yeah i won't be buying a new mercedes for a while huh <laughs> yeah this is it's uh you know you, you well it's funny you should say that actually because we've just recently swapped one of our cars and we were looking at one of the other swapping the other car to a beamer uh to a free series mm-hmm and they have literally doubled since I last looked at them as in, in price over the last like five, six years. Um, I mean, we're looking at, I mean, in Sterling, which obviously is uh, US, you'd be looking at $60,000. $60, oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's unsustainable. I it, mean, no, one, no one's making that sort of income to justify it. And Unless we go back to the days when they are truly a luxury car and that's it. Absolutely. And I was like, I mean, obviously, Back in the day, three series was classed as the, the cheapest, yeah. view, so to speak. It's almost like the entry level for that whole, yeah. Mm. Which brings me on to inflation. Obviously, a lot of people have wanted Bitcoin to be a star of value from a point of view of protection against inflation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, at the moment, we're following the NASDAQ as we speak. I don't think it should be, to be perfectly honest. I don't think it is a tech coin. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next, uh, I would say, five years. I don't think we should be looking short term. I do think, we, you know, the short term outlook for both Bitcoin and the markets is going to be, be lower. But then I think, obviously, long term, it's, it's not. It has some. Uh, so 
the thing about Bitcoin, if you go back to the original need for it and what, what got me into it, I need to buy things and I need to, I, I live in a world where all commerce these days is digital. I mean, I go on Amazon, get next day delivery on anything. And if I'm, you know, trading with somebody who's doing a job for me, they could be in the Philippines and I wouldn't know. The internet is completely transparent to that. I mean, it, sorry, it's completely clouded for that. I don't know where anything's getting made or done. I go to Walmart and buy a shirt. It was probably made in Indonesia. I go to Target and buy a desk and it was made in Shanghai. I mean, I don't know. This global world that, that we've got is sort of shrouded in mystery. A buddy of mine who's a, uh, into sports cars, American muscle cars, flew over from Australia uh, recently and took me to one of these speed shops, you know, where you buy all the parts because he's re restoring a car and he needed a certain gear shift or something for it. And we went into this supposed American speed shop in which all the engine parts were supposed to be US made. And only 40% of what they had in there was actually made in the United States. Everything else was Chinese, Taiwanese, somewhere is. It wasn't from here. And yet this is the world we live in. When it comes to digital transactions, I need to be able to send money to somebody as easily as I can send them a text message or an email. If I can't do that, I can't trade efficiently. I can't be productive. If I have to go and spend two or three days to wire money, wait for it to clear, use a counterparty like PayPal or whatever, that's not going to serve me very well. And I think that Bitcoin gives us the promise of that immediacy of transactions if we can handle the volume. And the thing that was most promising to me about it was Lightning Network. I've been following the Lightning Network since day one, a big fan, and uh, side chains were a wonderful thing. But if you're in the mining business, you know how much pushback in say 2016, 2017, side chains got, despite the fact that the miners couldn't handle the volume and the block size. And that whole, you know, Bitcoin uh, split off with, uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't even remember now. Anyway, all the various forks of Bitcoin that were going on at the time. These things were causing so much unrest within the Bitcoin community. And yet the answer was to scale it to a side chain, just like the merchant accounting world had done with the payment gateways on top of the banking money. So, you know, if you pay with a credit card, you get immediate authorized denial and you get there and then. But by the time the settlement of that transaction may take 72 hours later, maybe longer. Uh, the vendors are willing to do that because they trust that the counterparties of the merchant processing has guaranteed them that they will receive the money. They cannot, however, trust that you don't do a chargeback so there, it's on them, but Lightning solves all of that. And yet the only time that Lightning has meaningfully been embraced was in El Salvador. It's not been done in the Western world because the existing entrenched banking and financial services industry are threatened by something like this because they're sitting there happily making 3% merchant credit fees when, they, when you do the swipe by the vendor and Lightning, they make nothing. So yeah, of course they're going to push back. That's why every small business around town won't accept Bitcoin. If they would, because they, you know, they use things like, oh, it's volatile. The price changes. It doesn't have to be volatile. And it has to be volatile for 48 hours or 72 hours until you convert it to fiat. It doesn't have to be volatile. But that's not the message being told to these people. And so Bitcoin's adoption is now only within the investment community. 
It's only within the ho the hodlers and the average person who could benefit greatly from Bitcoin. That would be, you know, some village in Namibia. They don't get squat, you know, and that's what's scary to me. Everybody who's gone out there to try to make the 8.1 billion people on this planet all banked with their own Bitcoin has failed every single person because they're not meant to succeed. It's, wealth is supposed to be kept within certain wealthy classes. It's not meant to go to the villages of Africa or the Nigerian swamps. It's meant to keep in, you know, good, you know, rich people in, in Berlin and London and New York. They're supposed to own wealth, not, not the villages, peasants. See, we go back to our human nature. We can't be, if we can't overcome these things, if we can't transcend our own flaws and realize that we're not all powerful, we're not godlike, we're just a whole community of people, then Bitcoin can never succeed. All it will be is just a digital version of the flawed money system we already got. And we don't need a second one. What we need is a better one. And I'm not talking better from a technological perspective. I'm talking better from a philosophical perspective, something that keeps us honest and it negates our flaws. It's interesting you, you said that. I mean, did you hear the announcements uh, in January uh, from the Bitcoin conference uh, on the Lightning? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been following the El Salvador thing and you know what Max Kaiser and the guys down there are doing, but I haven't gone far deeper than that. Yeah, you can now do payments in shops on the new version and it's uh all we got to do is get the vendors to have a point of sale terminal that works the, just the same way their visa visa mastercard does i think what's an interesting point here is is that um the visionary who did actually once call bitcoin rat poison the man from berkshire halfway uh, oh yeah one of the richest guys in the world mm -hmm. won't mention his name recently dumped MasterCard and recently dumped Visa, two very long-term holdings, and instead put a billion into NEO, which is actually a cryptocurrency-friendly uh, yeah. bank. So I, th I think the big boys are slowly accepting it, but what they're wanting to do is, is I think they're just manipulating the market a little bit in the sense that let's get a bit of drama, Let's push the price down, then we'll enter, and then we'll see Bitcoin go back up. Yeah. Well, you, probably, you probably tell that because of being an old guy in this world, I, I came in as a free market, you know, everybody de de decentralized the world kind of guy. Um, I, that's always worked for me very well in all investments I've ever done and, and countries that I trade in and so on. But at the end of the day, uh, I realized that there is a force out there that does not want decentralization because they don't benefit from it. No, um, I mean, obviously, they want the US to be the reserve currency. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th I think, obviously, it's in their interests um, to see these um, black swan events that we're seeing in crypto as we speak. I think crypto is very early. Uh, even now, even even with the age of Bitcoin, I think we're going to see further maturity, and I think we'll see further, further stabilization. And I think at that point, that's when you're going to see less less volatility. Yeah, I, I really do hope so. I I believe that probably the I'm I'm betting on, and this is just me. I'm just not advice for anybody. I'm just betting on the fact that uh, central bank digital currency is coming 
will become the oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then at that point, it'll be interesting to see how Bitcoin survives under the threat. Look, we've gone through banking. The banking industry has gone through the five stages of grief from Bitcoin and said Bitcoin is dead since 2009 and it's still here. But in that process of, you know, shock and acceptance and negotiation and eventually co-opt, the governments have not done the same. The governments are totally reliant, particularly in the United States, on their cartel relationship with the central bank. And while they're $30 trillion in debt here, of money they can never pay back, they're completely tethered to the central bank. Uh, and uh, a machine they created themselves, they architected themselves, with willing participation, obviously, from banks. But uh, that's their world. And they will never uh, allow that to fail because if it fails, they fail. And consequently, any threat to that will be extinguished. Well, if you can't extinguish code and math because it just gets morphed, I mean, look at BitTorrent, right? They tried to kill off LimeWire. They tried to kill off Napster. They tried to, you know, regulate them out of business, even the Pirate Bay. And they're still around. And BitTorrent is still live and well and kicking. If that can't be gotten rid of because you can't kill code, then the only way you can do it is create better code. And better code would be, from their point of view, central bank digital currency. So the only weaponry that the bank uh, governments have got, the IMF, the G7, and so on, the only weaponry they've got is leg legislation. So they create Bitcoin 2.0 or whatever they want to call it, called CBDC. Maybe it's a US base because they want to retain the world reserve currency or the petrodollar or whatever they want to call it. Um, they put that out there and then immediately they start to legislate against all threats. And that would be firstly the alts, uh, well, firstly the stable coins because that's a direct threat to their own stable coin. I mean, anything that's based on US dollar as a, as a backing and call it stable is a joke in itself, but if that's what they want to do, they will kill off anything that will uh, threaten the US uh, central bank digital currency, get rid of that, and then eventually start working their way down the list. The alts go, all of those other projects that threaten their reserve position, and then finally the last bastion would be Bitcoin. So unless Bitcoin already has an entrenched position in regards to what the citizenry want, the, the average Joe on the street, grandma, uh, if she can't buy her cup of coffee at Starbucks with Bitcoin, we are doomed. So the, the, the way of saving this is to quickly get small business vendors out there accepting Bitcoin through the Lightning Network to evangelize this back out to people. So it's not a hodl and you know lambos into the moon but it's a this is a really easy way that you can make a transaction without having to pay fees and be a slave to a credit card debt then we've got something problem here we have a society that was raised on borrowed money not raised on savings and because bitcoin is not borrowed money it's actual money you have to hold and have to have earned have to generate and it's not borrowed then people are less likely to want to spend it versus pulling the visa out and buying the, the you know cappuccino at starbucks it's an interesting one you should say that from a point of view of where bitcoin is compared to the, the us dollar and 
you know, the stable coins. I mean, Bitcoin market cap now is about one trillion. Federal Reserve at the moment has five trillion in reserve. US dollar in circulation is 40 trillion. So Bitcoin's still got a long way to go um, to become of the reserve currency, so to speak. Obviously, it is one of the biggest, well, it is the biggest cryptocurrency. And I think, I think basically the states have got a lot to learn from what's happened with Bitcoin as in the adoption and the decentralization. I think it's going to be an interesting one when we do get the CBDCs. I do, th- I do think that's when, uh, you know, you touched on that, and I think that's going to be the turning point. I think Bitcoin at that point, it will just be so big that it will survive. I don't think the alts will. I don't think the stables in this instance, because uh, obviously if they outlaw it and say the stable coins is classed as a security and it's illegal and you need to register, blah, 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 everyone's just going to pull the money out. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the fact of the matter is, is actually if you think about it, the whole point of cryptocurrency, obviously, if you take Bitcoin, obviously, obviously you is the use use it and also potential store of value, so to speak, and inflation because of the 21 million scenario. I capped at 21 million. Why would you want to be why would you want to be in cryptocurrency, but then put your money in stablecoin? Yeah, agree. It's, agree. You can hold your own coins, get a ledger wallet. I mean, stick it in a safe somewhere. Put it in your bank deposit box. I mean, whatever. You don't that, need. I mean, that to me is stable. <laughs> I like to uh, hold my own wealth. Now, I know we've had these situations where people have been earning money off stable coins, but obviously a lot of these stable coin schemes aren't um, sustainable in the sense that if you, if basically they're not gener- if they don't have a utility and they're not generating fees, then how can they actually promise? these high APRs, which I think all viewers need to do their own research. And I think it's a case of, you know, we're positive on some, we're negative on others. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the payment processing adoption uh, really takes off. Interestingly, Lunar and Terra had a payment processing system that was used in South Korea. And it did really well because of the low transaction fees. I think if we can see some sort of adoption uh, in the U.S., on the Lightning Network, with with what we've seen, you know, been released at the Bitcoin conference, I, I think it, it's it's just going to go from strength to strength. If one thing this week I've learned, and I I learn, I, I mean, I'm obviously backgrounds investment banking and software technology, and I do trade on a daily basis. You learn something every single day. Every single day, I get educated on something, and if I've I've learned something this week it is with what's happened with Luna is something's too good to be true <laughs> than it normally is. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, more importantly, I've learned just how resilient Bitcoin is. Yes, we've seen a drop against the US dollar. Price is just an advertising mechanism. But as you know, we're limited to 21 million. And I think that's something that the Federal Reserve wants to learn from because one of the reasons we're in this inflation mess it's because we've printed far too much money. Mm-hmm. Last year, we printed more money. I think it was in the US, we printed more money than the, the previous 120 years. And yeah, then I mean, not... money chases goods and services. And then you have a supply and demand curve problem. And I'm an Austrian economics fan. Uh, so I, I see this at this very basic level. You put more money into the money supply and you make money cheaper. 
it chases more goods and services. And when it does that, it pushes their prices up. Blind Freddie can see that. That's not complicated. But the problem is that we don't uh, recognise that. We have politicians that blindly go out there and will lie to their people and say, oh, no, your gas prices are so expensive because of Ukraine. Got nothing to do with Ukraine. It's, it's true. That is actually oh. true. I mean, everything is unfortunately getting blamed on the war. Right. Uh, inflation was an issue before the war. Um, so true. But I think it's, it's quite convenient for certain people to say, hey, we have a problem with inflation because of, of the war. Because it then takes emphasis on, on, on their performance, off, off their performance, so to speak. But um, it is an interesting one that we've seen more money go into stocks and shares in the US in the last year than we ever have done because of the printing of the, of the money. Well, there's good reason for that. Uh, in the United States, if you go and open a bank account and try and put your savings in there, back in January, I think, it's probably about a good enough time to measure this, the average price of interest that was being paid was 0.09%. So less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of interest. The fees associated with maintaining that account exceeded that by a long shot. And so at the end of the day, you would lose money putting your savings in a bank. Simple. So you've got a world out there of retirees, people who are in their 50s, their 60s, 70s, who have worked hard all their lives, saved their money and taken their risks and hopefully have some sort of winnings, who are relying on government to provide them with some sort of a pension or social security or whatever, but the government can't afford that. So what ends up happening is that they have to use their own savings to generate a return that's equal to or in excess of their drawdown rate. So if, for example, if you save a million dollars and you're drawing down 4%, the old 4% rule, which I've questioned for a long time, but anyway, we'll use it. Um, that's 40,000 US dollars per year, where the average income of a US worker is a bit more than that, maybe 50 or 60. But as a, you know, as a retiree, you don't, you own, you paid your house off, you know, you know maybe you, you don't travel much in the car, the gas price doesn't really affect you so much because you're pretty much stable in your house. You buy food less and less, you don't go out and you know, go to concerts all day long, you know, you're much more conservative. Well, you can handle 40,000, that's fine. What you can't handle is if you can't get a return. So if you've got a million dollars and you're chasing a 4% minimum return, but you're really, with tax, you're really looking at eight or 10, where were you going to get those returns? You're not going to get it at 0.09% in the state in a savings account. The only place those people were able to get it was in the equities market. They had to put all of their savings and cash into passive index funds, Vanguards, Fidelity, Schwab, all these guys. And those funds were paying routinely 10% per year over the course of the last bear market, over the last 14 years. It was great until it wasn't. And then all of a sudden this year, they were paying 4%, then down to two, then negative, negative 10 in the last week. And all of a sudden, all these retirees out there who are relying on paying for their nursing home costs or their prescription drugs or whatever are freaking out because they're losing money at the time when they have to draw it down. And oh, by the way, the cost of a loaf of bread just doubled in price and the, the cost of a you know, gallon of gas just doubled in price. And they're going, I'm not getting any return on the stock market. In fact, I'm losing money and my costs are going up. Get me out of this mess. Where do I put my money? They have to go to safe haven. 
And the problem is the only place that they can go to safe haven right now would be real estate. But real estate is a long-term gain. It's not, you can't just put your money in, get your money out. It's not liquid. You know, you're buying a piece of physical property. So they have to look for alternatives. Now, will they look to a Bitcoin? Well, not if Bitcoin goes from 50 to 30 in terms of price. So they're still looking, they're seeking out where to put their money. Most of them probably gone to cash and they're sucking up the 10% loss based on inflation they're getting because it's better than what the market did last week. And until the market turns around, which is highly unlikely, because what are they doing? They're pulling money out of it, meaning there's less money in there to chase goods and services, less stocks are being purchased, less, and then earnings now become a thing. And all of a sudden the emperor has no clothes because everyone out there posting earnings reports are showing they're losing money, not gaining. Because why? Well, we just had COVID for two years. Of course, we're not going to make money. We furloughed all our people. These are basic, pragmatic realities that nobody has ever talked about. We talk about spreadsheets. We talk about big economic words that don't mean much. We, we, did, we talk about, we use the term things like stable coins. We don't really know what that means. That's a made up word right? It isn't stable and it isn't a coin. <laughs> it's a product, right? And we look at it from that point of view. We don't look at the pragmatic reality of what we're actually investing in. And that is to our peril. Unfortunately, you have a, a in the United States, everybody is in debt up to their eyeballs here. Nobody has actually any savings. So because they were using cheap borrowed money for a long time, they avoided the fact they weren't making any money on their savings because they didn't have any. It was just better to worry about what my credit card debt was and service that. Well, unfortunately, that's uh, subject to short-term interest rate hikes. And now that 15% used to get on the Visa card, it's 27. All of a sudden, it hurts to have a credit card balance. And yeah, you've got no savings. You can't service it. And by the way, the bank not only raised interest rates here, but they reduced the amount of money going into the supply. That means banks won't lend as much. This means they're much more particular about who they lend to. And your credit card, $100,000 line of credit used to have, nah, it's now 10,000 because we can't afford the risk. We don't want a 2008 all over again, which by the way, we architected, but that doesn't matter. We don't want that. So therefore we're gonna reduce your amount of access to money. And what happens? The entire economy screeches to a halt because nobody is out there spending money. They're all huddling it for the winter like squirrels with nuts and yet that money is being work made worthless all the time every single day this is a wealth transfer event this is not about economics this is about historical wealth transfer in the same way 1929 was and in the same way that the bank collapses of the 1800s were and as we saw in 2008 and i would go so far to say if you're a student of history you need to study things like the fourth turning and understand the 80-year the cycles the history has and the fact that we're in the unfortunate reality of the worst of those cycles right now. And what that typically brings forward is economic collapse and ag adverse events, war, and what are we seeing on our uh, TV news every day? Economic collapse and war. Oh, and bio, you know, bioterrorism, I guess, is a part of that. Well, that was COVID. I mean, these things that, you know, again, these are obvious pragmatic events that we see right laying out right in front of us, and yet we choose to bury our head in the sand and pretend it away. What would you say to someone that's in that position then? 
Because, I mean, obviously, you've been very successful in investing and in, in many different asset classes. Well, firstly, don't panic. I What's mean, your look, advice? Well, uh, oh, not that we're giving financial advice here, but... No, I, I can give philosophical advice. Um, money never disappears. It just changes hands, right? It goes from one place to another. It doesn't magically get invented. It just moves around. You can choose whether you want to be the recipient of that move or whether you want to see it disappear from you. I've always said to people in a gold rush, be the guy on the side of the river selling shovels. And right now, what you want to look at are global events and the, the obvious things that you can predict ahead and be the guy in the river selling shovels. What did I do? Well, I'll tell you what I did. This is not advice. I'll tell you what I did, though. I see that the world is reliant heavily on the CCP, China. It makes all of our goods and services, or at least it wants to. It wants to control, control supply chains, and it wants to control world trade. It also wants to control money. It wants to be the, the yuan, wants to be the petrodollar. They've already begun that process with Iran and many areas in the Middle East to buy oil and have the transactions settled not in US dollars. Russia's doing the same thing with rubles, right? So there is this shift, this power the, shift the going on. Sanctions will monumentally backfire. Correct. Now, meanwhile, the United States looks at itself and goes, well, one of the things we have to look at is demographics, age demographics particularly. We have a very flat age demographic. That is that people between the ages, say, 20 and 30, in quantity is equal to about the number of people we've got in the age of 40 and 50. And yeah, there are blips like millennials and boomers and things like that. But for the most part, we're, we're pretty flat demographically. China's not. China's one-child policy means that there are not enough factory workers in China to make the very goods and services we rely on. And they've got a COVID problem and those ships and containers aren't leaving Shanghai Harbor. So right now we've got a big, big problem. Corporations in America know that. They know there are risks and they know they have to de-risk themselves. So what are they doing to de-risk themselves? They're going back to areas where they can remove supply chain risk out of, the, out of the whole thing, and they can remove China out of the whole thing. They realize doing business with the communist regime was probably not in their very best interest, but hey, we used to make money on that. And that's what, by the way, controlled inflation, right? The, the reduction of cost of goods coming from China meant that we could, we could accept inflation into our lives willingly. But when the Chinese products are no longer coming in and you can't buy that Barbie doll for $5 and it's now going to cost you 50, inflation gets real. And that's what's exactly happening right now. Japan has a demographic problem. They haven't got enough young workers to be able to make their stuff. So they're not an option. South Korea is the same. China's the same. Most of the Asian region is the same. What country in the world does not have that demographic problem? In fact, has the polar opposite of that and is friendly to the United States and reduces risk on supply chain. There's one country, Mexico. And so what I did was I went down to Mexico and I bought a shitload of land. And I watched Mexico and its railway network completely get out of control. And the one thing Mexico's got with the United States that no other country has is a North American trade agreement. Canada has it too, but Canada doesn't have guys who will work for $6 a day. Mexico does. Mexico will threaten China's position and become the dominant trading partner with the United States. I said that two years ago. Three weeks ago, the numbers came out and the number one trading partner with the United States is now 
Mexico. Is that so, in China then? Yeah, it beat China out. We actually buy more stuff from Mexico now than we buy from China. No many people know this. This is basic on the ground economics. Well, how are you going to make money transfer between these areas? And yeah, you know, you hear on the news about the drug cartels, the money laundering and all that stuff. Yes, it's real, but it isn't the dominant conversation. The dominant conversation is how my, do you- My favourite show is always Huck. There you go, yeah. But um, the truth is, if you see what I see, where I in my second residence, which is Mexico, you will see factories that you've never seen before. You will see Shenzhen being built up in Carretero. This is what you will see on the ground. You will see railway networks full of goods going into Texas all day long, building new railway lines into New Mexico, new railway lines into Arizona. This is the Silk Road right in front of you. And I talked about, I go back to our conversation we had about Venice, Italy. Venice, Italy became wealthy because of trade. It controlled the medieval trade routes in shipping, but it also had Marco Polo. And all of a sudden, we are sitting right on the cusp of the new Silk Road. And that's where I live, right on the side, selling shovels in the gold rush. So while we talk about crypto and everyone wants to play their Xbox and get rich, you know, with their Lambos and hodling and whatever, I go down and get tacos. And that's how it works for me. And that's, that's my story. But I still need to know how do I pay Jose in Mexico City for the TV he just built, how do I do that without 15 middlemen in the middle? And I come back to, I need a currency, which is the counterparty, you have no counterparty, right? Yeah. And yeah. Jose is looking down south at El Salvador going, hmm, look what they're doing down there. Maybe we should be getting involved in that. And there is what I believe to be the future. I, I get you there. It's, I mean, I think it's it's good that we're chatting both real world and crypto because obviously crypto is evolving. We live in the real world. <laughs> exactly. And I think it'd be an interesting one from a point of view, if you think about the transactions between Mexico and the US, if they're done in Bitcoin, they're a lot more secure. Mm-hmm. From a public... You have to have the rich people buy in on it. You see, this, this is the thing that I think that most of the crypto industry has lost and, and missed the point of for the last 10 years. You can't do something and uh, ostracize the wealthy. You have to do something that involves them. Now, they don't have to control it, but they have to feel that they're getting some sort of special treatment, you know? They've if got, you to, do see, that, they've got they'll, to see a benefit. They'll sign up and they'll, they'll ease your skin, so to speak. They need to see a benefit. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of them are a little bit upset that they, they missed out because obviously... Yeah, you had a whole lot of Bitcoin evangelists going and telling them they were evil and they need to be thrown into you know hell and all that stuff. Yeah, how are they going to react to that? We're all human beings, right? Psychologically. Uh, exactly. And I think that, that is uh, a potential good point to end the uh, podcast. Peace and love to everyone, so to speak. So where do people they want to find out more about what you do? My crazy thoughts. <laughs> I do a podcast every week called The Unconstrained Podcast. I run a website called beunconstrained.com. Uh, people can go there, read my articles, listen to my crazy views on things. And... Uh, I have a community we've been building down there using the open source world of Matrix, which is a server platform that we 
host ourselves it's uh, federated and private uh so i encourage people to get involved it's free uh just come and join our community and start chatting and throw around your ideas of how you think the world's gonna gonna go forward or end i don't care um but at least let's have a conversation let's not let's not uh, get hypnotized by the social mantra that sounds good to me it's been a pleasure and thank you for having me i appreciate it been uh, it's been an education as well so i always learn some on every podcast <laughs> i was that's always a good thing and uh so do my viewers as well so without further ado all it leaves me to say is thank you for being on the podcast Alrighty, take care thank take you care. thank you for joining me today and listening to this episode as i've gone on my crypto journey myself over the last couple of years I'm all too aware of the overwhelming amount of information available online when it comes to investing in crypto. So thank you for choosing the Easy Crypto Podcast. It means a lot to me. Hopefully what I've shared today will help you on your investing journey, just like it did me. There's no reason why you can't go and make use of what you've learned today straight away. I'm living proof that these secrets and strategies I've shared with you do work. Please, by all means, feel free to share this with someone else you know who could benefit from it. That's the quickest way that we can build a collaborative community where we can share tricks and strategies which can turn our crypto investments into big profits. In the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss the latest tricks which could transform your crypto future. Every week, we'll be covering a different aspect of crypto investment, so whether it's NFTs, mining, or the metaverse, you really can't afford to miss out. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Christopher Hitchin, and this is the Easy Crypto Podcast, and I'll see you next time.